0: Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 22 as we continue in our trek through the entire Word of God. Paul's making his plea before the Jews, and as you know, Paul has a great love for the Jewish people and his brother according to the flesh, his brethren, and he wants to win them, and Paul really is convinced wholeheartedly that he's the man for the job. And I have to admit, when you look at his credentials, Paul was the man for the job. And so he's there, and of course, all of a sudden, he begins to speak, and of course, as we know and as we have read, a great tumult (laughs) ensues, and Paul is ready to be ripped apart, and so he begins to beckon with the hand, and he says, let me talk to him, and the centurion says, yeah, okay, and so he begins to speak to them in the Hebrew tongue, and we know From our last reading that they gave him silence. And they listened intently when they heard him speaking in Hebrew. And so as we pick it up in verse 15 Paul says. For thou shalt be his witness. And of course he's talking about his Damascus Road experience. And afterward how Ananias had come to him. And Ananias was speaking to him. He says for thou shalt be his witness unto all men Of what thou hast seen and heard, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And I just want to point out when he says wash away your sins, he's not talking about by baptism. If you notice, there's a comma there. Wash away your sins by calling on the name of the Lord. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. Now when we read this narrative of the text, it sounds like Paul is saying that immediately he returned to Jerusalem from Damascus, which we know is not the case. It's not what happened. It just sounds that way. Paul actually uh, stayed in Damascus for a short period of time, but then he went into the deserts of Arabia. He was on the backside of Arabia where he was there for nine to three years and learning from Jesus Christ himself. And learning what? Learning how badly he had misinterpreted the Old Testament. And so Jesus was correcting his doctrine during that time. And so when Paul comes from there, he's got this brand new gospel of grace and of mercy by faith alone, something that was totally foreign to the Jew. And that's the first place he wants to go with it. He's got this brand new freedom, freedom from the law. Paul was excited about it. And he thought they would be excited about it too. And some of them were. But a lot of them were not. But that's what happened. He got his whole thing corrected. And of course he got into some trouble. You know, he started preaching in the synagogues. And I told you before. And as you study for yourself, you see every time when Paul goes to a synagogue and he preaches the gospel, one or two things happened. Revival. Revival. Or revolt and most of the time it was revolt because they had a propensity for religion not unlike people today people love religion tell me what to do (laughs) give me a list tell me how to do things tell me what I should do what I shouldn't do we want stuff to follow and God does not want a relationship like that. God wants one of grace and of mercy and of a marriage Marriage relationship. They like, say, you know, we hear a lot about the Ten Commandments, you know, and every time somebody wants to tear the Ten Commandments off, you know, everybody goes in an uproar. And I always laugh about it a little bit, not because they're wanting to tear the Ten Commandments down, because the Ten Commandments are great, they're pure, they're holy, they're good. The problem is that the people who are griping about it never keep them anyway. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And they're going, The ones who are inflamed the most about that are the ones who don't keep them. So it's just crazy to me. But that, that happens. And that's what religion creates. You know? It's that, that performance mentality. You know? I, I want to do good, get good, do bad, get bad. And this is not the gospel that Paul had. But every time he went in, he would stir the Jews up. And of course, he stirred them up against him this time. And of course, at that particular point, and they were wanting to kill him. Let's look at verse 18. And Saul, him saying unto them, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. So the Lord tells him this. Get up and get out of here. They're not going to listen to you. Paul really wanted to witness to these guys, though. And he was a hard man to deter, even when the Lord was the one telling it to him. I mean, he was going, you know, kind of like Moses at this point. You know the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Let me give you a little Jewish joke. Moses was... Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law, you see. And the Lord, of course, was giving the law concerning eating meat. And he said, Moses, uh, don't boil a kid in its own mother's milk. And Moses said, what? He said, Moses, don't boil a kid in its own mother's milk. It's not right. Moses said, so what are you saying, Lord? I mean, you're saying we shouldn't eat meat with milk? No, Moses, listen to me. Don't boil a kid in his own mother's milk. It just isn't right. So, okay, let me get this straight, Lord. So what you're saying is we should have separate plates for meat and for milk. No, listen to me, Moses. Don't boil a kid in his own mother's It's just not right. Okay, Lord, I don't get upset. Let me see if I get this straight. So what you're saying, Moses, just do what you want. It's a Jewish joke. Because that's what happens, you know. So often when the Lord is so plain and so literal in what he says and so loving in what he says, we often are looking for a hidden meaning. You know, We want to be quiet because we have our own agenda. Paul was a man. Paul loved these guys. And the Lord's telling him, get out of here. Go. He's not arguing with him. He's not even giving him. Get out Why? Because they're not going to receive your testimony concerning me. Verse 19. And I said, Lord, they know that I am prison and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. So Paul is giving his reasoning to God why the Lord had just told him, get up and get out. He's going, yeah, well, wait a minute. Let me see if I got this straight. Let me, but Lord, I can do this. They know me, man. They know I used to be one of them. Just as a side note, when Paul says, I consented unto the death of Stephen, this is a proof passage for those of us who understand that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin council. Paul was a Jew of Jews. I mean, he was very high up, a very educated man. But he was also very respected at one time. (laughs) Not at this time. Because they looked at Paul as a heretic. You have to keep that in mind. They looked at Paul as though he had departed from the faith. Quite the opposite was true. He'd actually encountered the genuine faith, which is by Jesus Christ. But they were not receiving that. So when he says, I was consenting unto his death, it's a matter of fact that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And another little crazy side note about that. Anybody who served on the Sanhedrin council had to be married. Was Paul married? He had to be. Or is his wife? Never mentions her. Some have speculated that Paul wound up divorced because he turned to Christ. More than likely, that probably was the case. Because even in church history, he's never mentioned. Matter of fact, Paul even talks later on. He says, are we not allowed, as the rest of the apostles, to lead about a wife or a sister? And the fact is, as he was, but he didn't do it. Uh, But at that particular time, when he was on the Sanhedrin, he would have had to have had. Paul was convinced, though, and was convinced that he was the man for the job to win the Jews to Christ. To the point where he's arguing with the Lord. And I probably mentioned it. I heard an old pastor say one time, when you find yourself actually arguing with God, just know you're wrong. You know, just know you're wrong. And it's not going to work out. Just give in to what the Lord wants you to do and just, you know, go with it because it'll work out much better. Look at verse 21. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Notice the Lord didn't argue with him. The Lord listened to him, but he didn't argue with him. He just said, Go. Depart, for I'm going to send you hence unto the Gentiles. If you take a note tonight, or if you're listening by radio, mark that word Gentiles down. That's actually a match in this particular case. And I don't mean a match like, you know, two things that look alike. I'm talking about a match like you would strike when you flick it onto a fuel of fire. Because that's what Paul does at this moment. As soon as these Jews hear the term Gentile, it was as though there was a field of gasoline in front of him... And Paul literally flicks a lit match into the midst of it, and the whole place goes berserk. And they gave him audience unto this word. The Jews had a real disdain, and many do today, for Gentiles, you know? And I got to, frankly, I hate being here. It's a joke. It's a joke. I'm joking. But they really do, and especially at this time, when you, look, when you think about the Pharisees and the issues of being cleanly and, and, and having ceremonial cleanliness, when they would walk through the marketplace, they would pull their tunic in as tight as they could, lest it should brush up against a Gentile, regardless of how good that Gentile might be. It might be a great guy, <laughs> you know, giving and everything, but... They didn't want to touch one. Why? Because they they disdained them. They thought they were scum of the earth, fodder for the fire. So when they heard the word Gentile, that God was going to send Paul to the Gentiles, they exploded. They went crazy. And they gave him audience unto this word and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it's not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dirt into the air, The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore he cried so against him. So the captain's going, what did he say? I remember Paul speaking in Hebrew. He didn't understand a word that was going on. All he knows is that at one moment everybody was quiet as a church mouse and then in a split second... Everything breaks loose, and they're wanting to kill him. And so he had to drag him into the castle. Hmm. I can just see these guys waving their hands, throwing dirt. This is the way they protested, and they really, really wanted to kill him. And so the captain decides that he's going to examine Paul, which I think is strange that he jumps to this extreme. Scourging was a method which the Romans used to extract confessions from prisoners. Very painful process when you study it. Cicero, in his writings, 200 years before Christ, wrote about it. Wrote about not only scourging, but crucifixion, and gave graphic detail. And even to that, philosophers and historian said that the Romans had come up with one of the most gruesomest ways that they could possibly think of to kill a man. And scourging was, they would strap you to a a log or to a tree. And of course, they would take that cat of nine tails, what we call it. But in reality, it was just a bunch of links of of leather that had glass and and metal and everything woven into it. And the man who was given charge of it was good at it. And he would get it going, as Cicero would write about it. He, He would get it going in a rhythm like swinging and it would whistle and it would make noise but he would get it and 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 he would just start taking it across the back of the whoever it was it was being scourged and the term itself even in the greek means to be beaten half to death that's really what it means and during the process when they were scourging somebody most people would pass out because of the loss of blood in order to revive them because they didn't want you to miss any of the enjoyment of that the romans would throw salt water on you and of course on open wounds and you know what that's like Of course, this was the same thing that they did to Jesus. You know, when Jesus was before Pilate, and even though Pilate found no reason of condemnation in the man, he even said, I find no fault in him. And yet they demanded his blood. And so he turned him over to be scourged. And yet Jesus confessed nothing. He said nothing. Isaiah 53, 7. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet opened he not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her, shearer is dumb. So opened he not his mouth. And I've had people ask me, why why was it that the Lord was silent? Why did he not say something? He had nothing to confess. Only a man who was guilty would have confessed. And that's what they were trying to do, was to extract a confession. This is what the Romans did. A lot of times they would use it to extract confessions that they knew good and well that the prisoner had not committed because they wanted to clear their chart of unsolved crimes. Even at that time, those type of things were done. But Jesus literally fulfilled Isaiah 53.7 when he was scourged. And so, this is what they wanted to do to Paul. But look at verse 25. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that he was uh, told that he told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? And he said, Yea. And the chief captain answered said, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain was also afraid, after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priest and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before him, before them, excuse me. It was illegal to scourge a Roman citizen. Couldn't do it. He had to first be formally accused, and then he had to be found guilty, and he had to be condemned to death. They didn't just scourge anybody. They only scourged people who were condemned to die. Why? Because you were going to be brought most of the way there through the scourging anyway. And so they used it mainly just to extract confessions. So Paul uses his Roman citizenship and it's just one of Paul's idiosyncrasies that I love because he's wise. There's times you know when when you need to be as wise as serpent but as harmless as dove Jesus said. And this was a time when Paul just used his Roman citizenship in order to save himself from being scourged and I would have done the same thing. Let's look at Acts 23 Verse 1, and Paul, earnestly beholding the council said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul's going to make, he's going to be making this literal statement, almost verbatim, in the next chapter in verse 16. He's going to reiterate it. I here undo, I exercise myself, he says, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. What a statement. I read one pastor who, in his commentary on that, said Paul was an extraordinary man. Paul was an extraordinary man. But that he could make such a statement that his conscience was always void of offense toward God. And this particular pastor, of whom I love and had a lot of respect, although I disagree with on this, He said, Paul was able to say something that I could not. I haven't always had a conscience void of offense. You know, I make mistakes. I I still have flaws. I still sin. And therefore, I have a problem. But Paul, what an extraordinary man. I agree that he was an extraordinary man. I mean, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. The Lord had chosen him to do such a thing. But Paul doesn't make this statement based on some accomplishment because that's what it would be if I were to say, I have a conscience void of offense toward God. Always. Until this moment. Because I've just done everything right. That would be a statement of pride. And and it certainly would be a lie in my case. And it would be a lie in everybody else's case. Because we know. But it would have been a lie in Paul's case, if he was making that statement based upon his own action. So often, we find ourselves trying to stay within the good graces of God by the things that we do, and we find it hard to break away from that performance-based type of relationship with Jesus Christ, and yet, that's what we're called to do is to have a non-performance base. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do what's right. When the Holy Spirit is indwelling a person, your desire is going to be to do what is right. It's going to be there. It's not something that you have to muster. But Paul's teaching really something entirely different in this particular statement. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3, and let's look at what Paul says about his own works. Because I just want to make it clear that he's not dealing with the issue. When he says, I have a conscience void of offense toward God until this point. He's not saying that like it was some sort of an accomplishment based upon his life in the law. Even prior to Christ or afterward. But listen. Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1. Paul's writing and he says, finally my brethren. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he might wear of that he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me? Those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. You notice it says not in Christ, but of Christ. If it says of Christ in your Bible, underline it. It's the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowships of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So anybody who thinks that Paul looked at his past life as great as it was in the world, as much accomplishment as he had, He counted it dung. That's a pretty strong statement compared to what he had in Christ. You can easily see from the text what Paul thought of his ability to achieve righteousness or a good conscience toward God by his own works. He counted them, like I said, as refuge. Some of your Bibles say, but I like the word dung here because it's strong, not just smelly. So what was Paul saying when he was referring to having a conscience void of offense toward God? He was talking about his position in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has imputed his righteousness to me and my sins have been imputed to him and this, of course, transpires by faith alone, I can honestly say I too have a conscience void of offense toward God why because it's based upon what Jesus has done not what I do John Wesley talked a lot about sanctification and he's right the Bible says those he foreknew he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son that is sanctification the word sanctified simply means set apart for a holy use it's really what it means Simple. But there's two aspects of it that a lot of people and a lot of people miss, and that is that it is both positional and progressional. Positional, in that on the cross, there was a double imputation that took place. Jesus' righteousness, everything he did, everything he lived, and everything that he'd done was given to you by faith alone, imputed to you. I like that word. Look it up. But in turn, all the you. Your sin, all the ugly, all the gross, all the nasty stuff, was imputed to him. Hmm. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. Because we owed a debt that we could not pay. If we don't grasp the imputation that Christ has done for us, You will live a failed life in Jesus. You'll live a miserable life in Jesus. And that's why so many Christians do live in failure. Because they don't realize that the victory is already won. So they're constantly focusing upon their temporary failures. I like the fact that Paul says, I see to it always that I have a conscience void of offense. How can I do that? By trusting in all that Jesus has done. Because of my position in Christ... God sees me that way. i got a verse for you. If you ever feel down, if you ever feel like a loser, because we're going to touch here on them just a minute, here's a verse for you. Write it down. 1 John 4.17. Because get this one in your heart. It's one of those little power pack verses. It's like what J. Vernon McGee used to say, one of them truth nuggets, that you just need to know because it's so powerful. And First John, he writes, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. What a statement. It is imperative in this life that we remind ourselves that we are both positionally and progressionally sanctified oh i have everything that i need to have for heaven's sake i have everything i need to have for life's sake by these great and precious promises where he has made us fit in the beloved i mean we have everything that pertains unto life and godliness because of what jesus has done yet we grow in the grace and knowledge of the lord and savior jesus christ we're still growing that's our progressional sanctification but positionally, I can rest assured that at any given moment, that I'm right where God wants me to be. Oh, there is that molding that takes place in this world. Because as God uses us in the kingdom of God, sometimes we have to be molded for the, and fit for the maker's use. But that's a whole other issue. We need to have boldness, as he says, on the day of judgment. So many people are scared to death on the day of judgment. And many people ought to be scared for the day of judgment because they have not submitted to the righteousness which is of God through Christ. But they go about to establish their own righteousness and they are going to fail miserably. It is solely because of his position in Jesus that Paul was able to make this seemingly simple statement. I have a conscience void of offense unto this day, brother. But it wasn't because he was saying, look at how good I've done. We read what he thought about the things that he had done. Even how good they were, he counted them but done. But yet he could say that he was not offensive towards God. Why? Because he was in Christ. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus has imputed to us everything. That, like I says, as it says, as he is, so are we. Well, how is Jesus? Is He holy? Yes. Is He righteous? Yes. He's everything. He is all that and then some. And so are you. In Him. Not of yourself. But in Him. And I love that. And therefore I have a right standing always with Christ. So often we think and we have convinced ourselves that somehow a sin, a mistake, a misstep or whatever, a failure, is going to separate us from the love of Christ. And of course Paul would later write and say nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing means what? Nothing. 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 So Paul says this, until this day I've had a conscience void of offense toward God. Look at verse (coughs) 2. The high priest Ananias Commanded them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. Then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? Whitewashed, called him a whited wall. I find it interesting that Jesus used this same term when speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, he called. Matthew 23, 27, you don't have to turn, I'm going to read it for you. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Oh, they looked good on the outside, Jesus said. But they were full of dead men's bones. That's that's religion. Because there was nothing more religious than the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. They prided themselves on it. I mean, when you think about people who really knew the word, it was those categories. The scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they knew the word. They knew the Old Testament. And they thought that they walked according to the law. Their righteousness was in their obedience to the law. And Jesus called them hypocrites. In the Greek, the word means what? Do you know? Actor. I'm an actor. And the crazy thing is that most of them didn't know they were actors. They didn't know it. Even though Jesus pointed it out to them. The Bible says that God desires truth in the inward parts. I think it's funny. You know, Jesus said that there was two men that went into the temple to pray. One was a publican, and the other was a sinner. And the publican stood there, and he said, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this man, for I fast three days a week. I pay my tithe. I do this, and I do that. The publican beat upon his chest and tore his shirt and said, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man walked away justified. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Why? Because he was truthful. He was honest with God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess our sins. I love the word confess there because in the Greek it means to agree with. If we agree with God that we are sinners. And so many times people don't. People don't. I remember witnessing to a doctor one time, many years ago. I liked this guy. I liked him, little Filipino guy. Man, I just wanted him to come to the Lord. I just, I was like Paul at that time. I thought if I, I can, if I, I I know I can get to this guy. I know, Lord, let me in there. Send me in, Coach. (laughs) Let me, let me have a strike at you. I know I can do it. And I got in there and. Man, I laid the gospel out. I I really thought even a three-year-old would have dropped to his knees and, and confessed the Lord. And at the end of my presentation, he said, But, dog, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. You've done nothing wrong. Brother, you came into this world wrong. You were born wrong. Sin isn't something that you do. It's what you are. That's why you do it. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you are one. But I couldn't make him see it. The Pharisees couldn't see it. The Sadducees couldn't see it. The scribes couldn't see it. Because their righteousness was based upon their performance in the law. And that's the problem with religion. Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, you look great. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're full of death. Nothing worse to the ears of a Jew than to hear that they had death in them. They were scared to death of death. Why? Because the law said if you touched any dead thing, you were ceremonially unclean. So they wouldn't touch anything. Not only would they not touch a dead body, they wouldn't touch anything. They had touched a dead body. And so even not everybody was born, or excuse me, not everybody was buried in a sepulcher. Not everybody could afford that. Many people were buried in Israel. They still are. But during this time, they would put a headstone on the grave, and they would whitewash it. And they would whitewash it not so that the markings of whose grave it was could be more easily seen. They whitewashed it so that other Jews would know it was a grave. So they wouldn't accidentally touch it or go over it or buy it. That's religion. Looks good on the outside but it's full of death. It's full of dead men's bones. It brings nothing. It doesn't bring righteousness. It brings self-righteousness. It brings judgment. There's no mercy in it. There's no grace in it. There's nothing. It's empty. Paul calls Ananias a whitewashed wall. Tells him, the Lord is going to smite you. I do think it's interesting, because you're going to see here in just a minute, the reason Paul said this was because he didn't really know it was the high priest. There's a reason for that, we're going to discuss that. But what I want to point out to you is when Paul says this, now I heard a pastor, and I've heard many of them who preach this, and you know, I, I just, I don't believe it. They said, well, Paul was, you know, Paul lost his cool, you know, somebody hit him in the mouth i got to be honest with you. I'm a man. Somebody slaps me in the mouth I'm not looking for, it. I'm going to be a little irritated. I might not act very pastoral at that moment. Might get a little upset. <laughs> might lay hands on somebody. Might pray afterward, you know what I'm saying? That that, that kind of thing. And that's me. But I don't think that Paul was doing it. I don't think Paul spoke it. In anger, I think what Paul did was when that happened to him, it struck in him. I mean, keep it in mind, Paul was an apostle, yes, but he was also a prophet. Many things Paul said were prophetic. And he speaks a word of prophecy that fast. You whitewashed wall, the Lord will smite you. You set in judgment of me of the law, and yet you're breaking the law less than two years from the time that Paul says this, Ananias is assassinated. I think that's interesting. So God really did take him out. God did smite Ananias, even though he goes on to say, verse six, but when Paul, excuse me, I jumped ahead of you. And they that stood by said, revilest thou, verse four. God's high priest. Then Paul said, I knew not brethren that it was the Lord's high priest, for it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So Paul didn't exempt himself from the law or from the word of God just because. he, He genuinely didn't know. Which is why I say, once again, Paul spoke by prophetic utterance. It was instantaneous, but it came true. It came true. It's been suggested that the reason Paul didn't recognize Ananias as the high priest was he simply couldn't see him. And there are verses that tend to lend some validity to the probability that Paul indeed suffered from some sort of an eye issue. Uh, in fact, if you read Galatians chapter 4 and verse 15, he said, You know, where is the blessedness that you spoke of? He said, For I bear you record. That if it had been possible, you should have plucked your own eyes and had given them to me. And so there are stories also in history, in church history, in, in the early church history, that talks about Paul as being kind of a short, scrawny, bald headed little Jewish guy. Had a long, tapery nose. But that his eyes were constantly running. Not really a vision of attractiveness. You know, when you hear about it, it's like, I don't think Paul was necessarily a really handsome guy, but boy, was he a blessed one, you know? What an amazing, amazing man he was, but it is highly probable that he just couldn't see right. He talks about, you know, the fact that he had a thorn in the flesh. Now, it doesn't really say what it is, and I would not be dogmatic about it and say, well, yes, this is what it was. I think you're free to make your choice on that. Uh, You know, maybe your suggestions are as good as any other Bible teacher. I mean, we don't know. But according to what we know by history and some of the other things that Paul has said, like I quoted in Galatians, it's highly possible that he had an eye problem. And that was the reason that he couldn't see. But my point, my point, is that when Paul spoke, he spoke by prophetic because it happened. He told Ananias that God would smite him. Two years later, Ananias was dead. Listen. Thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed. See, Paul, Paul didn't know. You know, because Paul even said, well, I didn't know it was the high priest, brother. For it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the Lord's anointed. Well, he's absolutely right. But who was the anointed in the room? Was it Ananias or was it Paul? I say it was Paul. Ananias was a whitewashed sepulchre. <coughs> Ananias was a hypocrite. And the Lord took him out. It's not unlike the story of Elijah. You Remember Elijah when he was up on the hill? He just sat there minding his own business. I love that story. Just minding his own business. And the king says, you don't want to talk to him. So take those 50 men. Go over there and tell Elijah I said, come here. And the first guy gets there with his 50 men. And he says, Well, oh, man of God. King wants you to come down off that hill. He said, if I be a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. Poof. And it did. You know, you just don't talk to a man of God like that, man. You know, thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed. God hasn't backed off of that. It happens, you know. I just love that story. It doesn't really have a lot to do with what I'm talking about, but I just thought it was good. (laughs) I love that idea. He's right up there with Paul. Look at verse 6. And when Paul perceived... That one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, you know why, right? Because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees did not, which is why they were sad, you see. Okay? Okay? So there arose this dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees and the multitude was divided for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection neither angel nor spirit. They were humanist for those of you taking notes. But the Pharisees confessed both and there arose a great cry and the scribes that were with the Pharisees part arose and strove saying we find no evil in this man. I love this stuff. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled into pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. Now, you got kind of two choices on this passage. Some look at this as Paul being clever. He looked around. It says that he perceived that some were Pharisees, some were Sadducees. And he said, hmm, what do these guys hate the most between each other? Oh, that's right. One really hates the resurrection doctrine. So that's what I'm going to throw out. And he brings it up. And of course, the suggestion is, is that he figured it would cause a tumult. There would be a big fight and maybe Paul could ease on out the back door while, while everything was going up in smoke. Or Paul saw that half of them were Pharisees. He himself being a Pharisee come from a family of Pharisees. Knowing that the center most important doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Paul would later write that if Christ be not risen, then you are dead in your sin. We are all men most miserable if Christ is not risen from the dead. Your faith is in vain. This is what he said. Paul wanted to win these guys to the Lord. I personally believe it wasn't by cunning that Paul did this. I mean, if you want to believe that, you're, 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 you're free to do so. There's plenty who do. But I think Paul saw the opportunity of a group of people that he knew understood the resurrection. They at least believed in it. And they understood that God speaks to us sometimes by angels or by spirits or those type of things. So he pled to them because he had the greatest opportunity to win some of them. Because that's the way Paul thought. Paul was constantly wanting to win these guys to Jesus Christ. He was still, even though the Lord had said, get thee out of this place because they're not going to receive your ta- Paul was hard to deter. So even as he's being arrested, even as they're trying to help him, uh, or the centurions were at least from being torn apart, he winds up here in the council. And of course, he sees an opportunity to speak to his own kind, which are the Pharisees. And he begins to preach a gospel. But, once again, what happened? A riot broke out. So as Paul begins his treatise, you know, giving the gospel of Jesus Christ, he got to the issue of the resurrection. And bedlam ensues. They go nuts. The whole place explodes. And, of course, Paul is taken by force in order to keep the mob from tearing him to pieces. If you ever think your ministry's tough... Go back and read Paul. Just read it, because I've had my boohoo days in ministry. I've been in a <laughs> pastor for a long time, and there's days where you're going, "Lord, you." The Lord's going, "Shut up." Yeah, you, you have no idea how easy you got it here. I was watching this has got nothing to do with my notes, but it certainly has to do with what I just said. I, just, I was watching here recently. I'm a documentary freak. I just, I can't help myself. I'm always watching documentaries, and I'm looking for new ones. And I saw this one on the BBC. And you've got to be leery of the British, but, you know, they're all right. But I, I tuned it. it was about the railroads in India, who the British, they built them during the colonial days. But they were doing it by, by you know, there's like, it, the whole nation of Israel, or Israel, there's in India one time, it's all broken up, Punjab and all those places, it's all broken up. And they're the ones that broke it up, I mean, basically running train tracks everywhere. But I'm watching these trains and there's just all these people. And of course, this country is all Hindu, and then as soon as they cross the track, it's all, you know, uh, Muslim, and then there's the sheikhs and then And and you're looking at all these people, and you're going, wow. How do we reach these people? Now, I know there's missionaries there. Hear me out on this, because I've been beating my wife with this, going, help me. And I'm pounding this off of somebody, because I don't understand it. I look at mythology, and I can't help being analytical. It's just the way I am. It's why I was a chemist. I don't understand people believing ridiculous things. I really don't. When you look at Hinduism and the absurdity of it, if you know anything about it, gods and demigods, and it's just, and you're seeing people, religion, it's religion in its worst. And of course, you look at the damage that it has brought to that country, the poverty, the caste system that they have there, and the thousands and millions of people that suffer under it. And I know there's missionaries there because I know some. I've got a nephew there who's a missionary. But yet the vastness of that How do we begin to challenge people on what they believe? How do we do that on a mass scale? Because we don't have a lot of time left. I really don't see it. I, I really think that we, if we knew how close the Lord's return is... We would be up on top of the roof with a megaphone. We would not be wasting our time. And as I watched that video, I mean, my heart was breaking. I'm going, Lord, uh, how do we reach these people? But you know what? We have a lot of people right here in our own country. We got people sitting in the comfort of pews every Sunday who have not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And their fate will be the same. Paul had a desire to win the lost. He was not discouraged until after they rejected it. And I know that he must have been very discouraged. Even as he tries to lay the gospel out, the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the Pharisees, people that he thought would, would, it, would at least accept it, a riot ensues. They have to take him out. He's sitting now in a cell, not knowing what's coming. Paul must have been extremely discouraged at that moment that nobody wanted to hear it nobody you put yourself in paul's place you're so confident that you know you're going to be able to do this if you just get the chance if you if you just lord just let me just put me in coach just give me a chance let me have the bat i know i can do this they know me I used to be one of them. I know this will happen. And you get in there, and finally you get the chance, and you swing. And it's not that Babe Ruth moment when Babe points out to the out, and he hits the ball, and it goes completely out of the park. Oh, it ain't one of those. Oh, you point to Jesus, and you strike out. I can't imagine How heartbroken he had to have been. How discouraged he had to have been at this moment in his life. I don't know whether you've ever had moments like that. Oh, man. You feel miserable. You feel worthless. You had the chance. And you blew it. You blew it. You had it. And your confidence is shattered. If you have any. But you feel worthless. You feel like you can't do anything for God. Nothing. It's Paul's at that point. That's where he's at at this moment. And then you look at verse 11, it says And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer. Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Man. That's why I serve Jesus. Jesus doesn't come and say, Told you. Told you so. Told you not to do it. You, had to, you wouldn't listen. He doesn't do that. He's not, even, he's not making light of what Paul did. He's acknowledging what Paul did. Be of good cheer. There's another passage that actually takes that same word and says, Be of good courage. Why? Why would the Lord say? Because he was very discouraged at that moment. But Jesus stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. You've done it. You did it. You witnessed for me here. He doesn't even say, didn't work. (laughs) He doesn't. He just acknowledges that Paul did it. And then he says, But I've got something else for you to do. So often, we can make mistakes. And I know there's people who listen to this show. We don't call it something beautiful for nothing. Because God can take the worst situation, the most messed up thing that you have done, that you might be thinking at this moment is not fixable, that you've blown it, that you had the chance and you... Struck out. And God can turn that into something beautiful. The Lord can come alongside. The Lord has and will. And say be of good cheer. I've got something else for you to do. Serving the Lord doesn't mean that there won't be failures. There will be. What there won't be is condemnation. So often when we fail, we feel condemnation. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of James, let not many of us be teachers, brethren, for we shall concur the greater condemnation. I myself have learned this one the hard way. It's absolute fact. You won't receive condemnation from God. Why? Because Paul would later write in Romans 1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to us. Why? Because Jesus comes alongside and he says, be of good cheer. I've got something else for you to do. But the world. mm, That's a whole other story. Paul the Apostle in Romans said, who is it that condemns? Not Christ. Christ restores. He lifts us up. He puts us back on the path, tells us to be of good cheer, not to give up. Who is it that condemneth, Paul said, it is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God who maketh intercession for us. Jesus is not my condemner, he's my intercessor. And he's your intercessor. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why Christ has done everything for you. So that we can walk in confidence. So that we can say with the apostle, I see to it always to have a conscience void of offense toward God. Why? Because of all that Jesus Christ has done. And because he has imputed to me that which is his by faith alone. As he is, so am I in this present world. Oh, I'm flawed. So are you. But we're growing in the grace of God. That's my progressional journey, and I'm willing to do it because it's the Lord who is doing it through me. I don't even do that much of it. All I have to do is believe, trust, and believe. So I want to encourage you tonight, whether you're sitting here, whether you're listening by radio. I don't know your story. We all got one. Some of our stories are untold. Some of us have been very open about them. But if you've ever done anything that you think is not fixable, I hope you know better than that tonight. Jesus says, be of good cheer. I've got something else for you to do. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, I thank you that in Jesus, we have everything that is sufficient for our relationship with you. Lord, I am so thankful that you can take the most wretched situation, Lord Father, and turn it into something beautiful. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet clung to your work, Lord Father, that you've done through Jesus. That they would turn to the Son and allow Jesus to stand next to them and say, be of good cheer. I thank you for being our intercessor, Lord for pleading our case and for making us righteous and justified and sanctified and holy in this present world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.